0: We are actually ending up our summer of preaching here at Cobblestone. I know you all are like, "Well, we're in school; the kids are in school." But for the month of August, I invite friends, pastors, guys from my past to just kind of yell at you. Uh, the man today is was my middle school youth pastor at Oxford Bible Fellowship here in town. Um, his name is Mike Erie, and I'm pretty sure I could tell some stories about him that would make you not want to listen to him. Um, so, like, that's he, he right. <laughs> Um, so I'm not going to talk much about him, other than I I believe you should listen to him. Uh, I trust him and I love him. So if you would, this is Mike here. If you'd welcome up here, here he is. I think I have more stuff on you than you have on me. Just to be just to be clear. All right, hello everybody. How you doing? Welcome to Oxford. If you are not from here, um, I wish someone would have said my first Sunday in Oxford. Hey. Don't feel pressure to make these the the four greatest years of your life, because they're not going to be. It's really going to get better. Um, And so please don't feel that pressure to like, no, life gets much, much better. It really, really does. And so you have much, much to look forward to. Anyway, um, my name is Mike. I'm thrilled to be with you. If you have a Bible or an app, let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, So uh, Andrew said, hey, preach whatever is on your heart. And so... We're going to talk about dieting today. Um, I've got some personal, no, I'm kidding. Uh, We're not, um, obviously. Um, No, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what it is that Jesus had in mind when he first mentioned the word church and what this is here that we do, why this matters. So in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, we read this. When Jesus came to the region of what? Caesarea Philippi. Now, does anybody care? No. We immediately skip over that part and go, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, if you've been in a church at any point in your life, this is kind of one of the biggest passages biggest questions that Jesus poses, and very often this is used as kind of a, well, what do you say about this Jesus? What well, if he were to ask you? There's some stuff going on here, though, that's super interesting, and it's buried in the phrase Caesarea Philippi. So we, when we as Americans read the Bible, we just think Jesus talked in English, he had blonde hair, he was Swedish looking, um, and... Um, You know, it's just kind of a, you can directly train, no. Jesus, of course, like geography matters in the Bible. That's why it's talked about so much. So we're going to spend 15 minutes on Caesarea Philippi. This is going to be painful. You're going to be so glad when Andrew teaches next week, right? I can be awful because he will look better by comparison. This is fantastic. No, but we're going to spend 15 minutes on Caesarea Philippi because, Everything that Jesus says after this reference uh, is actually in contrast to what's happening there. All right? Are you ready? Okay, 15 minutes begins now. Fire up. Katie, fire up the map. There we go. Here we go. School has started, my brothers and sisters. Now, there is, see that the, the, the blue circle up there? That is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, his home base was in a city called Capernaum, and Jesus does the vast majority of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee um, in in towns near there. Now, notice if you go north, there's Caesarea Philippi, right, on almost the northernmost border of Israel in Jesus' day. Now, the reason I want to show you where it is is because you need to know that Caesarea Philippi isn't on the way to anywhere else. It's not like you're heading down to Jerusalem, and you happen to stop by as you're passing through. No, no, no. This was a thir- almost a 30-mile walk from where Jesus did the vast majority of his ministry. Make sense so far? All right, so you need to know that when it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he's not just wandering around doing his Jesus thing, and oh, here we are in Caesarea Philippi. This was a very intentional, out-of-the-way trip that he was making. Now, Caesarea Philippi, if you would have heard this in the first century, you would have had a whole truckload of cultural information sitting behind the reference. This really begins the 15 minutes of background. That was was like background-ish. This, though, here we go. Now, Caesarea Philippi in the Old Testament was known as the city of Banias, and it was built around a spring that rested at the foot of a very famous mountain in the Old Testament called Mount Hermon. Now, in the ancient Near East, whenever you had fresh water bubbling out of the earth, you would typically have a shrine to a fertility god or goddess, because they quickly associated the presence of water with the presence of life, with crops and with livestock, right? And so, very often in the ancient Near East, you would have fertility gods and goddesses built are worshipped around these sources of fresh water. In the Old Testament, there were two Canaanite fertility gods, Baal and Ashereth. This is is one of the places where they were were worshipped, all right? Again, we don't understand it, but to the ancient Near Eastern mind, source of fresh water, especially when you couldn't see the bottom of it, held very kind of mysterious and mystic sort of significance. So you would worship fertility gods and goddesses here. Now, there was a city in the Old Testament called Dan, D-A-N. This was a place where Israel sinned greatly because they fell to the worship of these fertility gods in the Old Testament. Now, a guy named Alexander the Great, many years later, comes through and conquers this whole region. And what Alexander the Great does is he introduces Greek gods where they were Canaanite gods before. And so he introduces the worship of of a god named Pan, P-A-N. Let me show you Pan, boom. There he is, very handsome. Um, Half man, half goat, and he has a flute. If you've ever heard of the Pan flute, this is where we get that idea. Pan was the shepherd's fertility god in the Greek pantheon, and so the, the, the region that becomes Caesarea Philippi is known as the worldwide center of Pan worship. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Pan. Pan has an interesting lineage we won't get into, but because Pan is the god of fertility, um, Pan had to engage in fertility-type things, if you know what I'm saying. This is a family-friendly show, but you know what I'm saying. <sighs> Next, he would, he would come out from the underworld. Next slide, Katie. Katie. And he would seduce consorts that were called nymphs, all right? And what he would do, I kid you not, is he would play the flute and induce something called panic in these consorts. This was an extreme state of arousal or terror, depending on your orientation towards Pan. And he would actually pursue them, conquer them, engage in fertility rites with them. And that, it was thought, brought fertility to the region, And you're sitting here like, yeah, I came to learn about Jesus, not about this guy. Agreed. Relevance is 10 minutes away. Now. (laughs) All right. So so this is all stuff you can Google. I don't recommend it, though, because these are the family safe images next. He's very vile. He's very lustful. He's very seductive. Like, um, he, he would be, like, if he were around today, he would be running a porn site. I mean, you know, he's just, like, that kind of horrible of, there was a sensuality to him that was just evil where he would seduce these nymphs. Next. And, and, there's, and so in Greek art and architecture and everywhere, there's all of these sorts of images. Next. Now, the Pan was worshipped where this spring came out of the mountain, all right? This is an artist's rendering of what this whole complex that Jesus is now entering into would may have looked like back in the day. Let's go to the next slide, Katie. I want to talk through this really quickly, all right? On the left, do you see the cave, the big hole back there behind the temple? Okay, that was where the water bubbled up. Josephus, this Jewish historian, tells us the Jews thought that it was bottomless. So in Jesus' day, that cave was called the gate to the underworld because that's where they believed the gods and goddesses lived, in, in a place called Sheol in Hebrew or Hades or Hades in Greek. So this place was called the gate of Hades. That cave was called the gate of Hades, all right? Because that was where the gods and goddesses of the underworld would come up out of the underworld and then provide whatever they did to the region and then they would go back in. Makes sense so far? I know. I told you it was painful. I told you and you are reflecting back to me that you are in pain. And so I receive that and I will continue pushing on. Now, to the left there, that big temple is a temple to um, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, you know Caesar Augustus, right? Caesar Augustus, when Alexander the Great, of course, died, his territory was split. Um, a generation or so later, Rome comes through, co- uh, conquers everything. Caesar Augustus brought peace, supposedly, to the Roman Empire, and so he was worshiped everywhere. Um, but he gave this region of territory to a guy named Herod, who you may recognize from the biblical story. So Herod had several sons, several of whom he murdered, but there were a few he let live, and when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was split into three called a tetrarchy, and the guy, his son named Philip, took over this part. So the city is called Caesarea, which is the city of Caesar, But there was already one of those after Philip. So Caesarea Philippi meant city of Caesar from Philip. And so there in the city was a temple dedicated to Augustus because Augustus had given them the land. Makes sense so far. Fascinating, I know. Now, moving to the right, that is where Pan was worshipped. Those little indentations into the rock are called niches, which I think is a funny word to say. And so the big niche is where Pan would be, and then the little niche is where his consorts would be worshipped. And they would be invited out to do their fertility thing so that fertility could be brought to the region. To the right of that is a, a temple dedicated to Zeus, and scholars are really divided over whether or not that existed in Jesus' day or not. To the right of that, you see that covered, uh, that sort of covered building, small covered building? That was, um, the, the way you worshiped Pan is that you would take live goats and they would do things to these live goats that we will not speak of. And they were considered holy. And when they died, they would be buried in these kind of ritual places. So right to the right of the Zeus temple is the place where they buried the dead goats. And then this little horseshoe here where Ohio State kind of gets its stadium idea from right here. <laughs> the horseshoe is where the, uh, something called pandemonium would take place. So once a year in the spring, a statue of Pan would be brought forward into the city. Hundreds of thousands of people would come to this thing. And then they would, as Mila X9H9, your child is calling. Is that what that is? And is that what that is? It's, that's the universal sign for help. Um, life does get better, and then you have children, and then the whole circle. Though no, I'm just kidding. And if you're like, why did this guy get a chance to speak? I'm with you. I am totally with you. I wonder that too. Now, What you would do is you would parade pan through the city. People would gather. Something called pandemonium would happen, which involved all sorts of immorality and wickedness and awfulness, okay? I want to show you what it looks like today next. I was there four years ago. That's what it looks like today. In 1879, an earthquake moved the spring forward, so the spring doesn't come out of the cave anymore. Next. That's a little closer so you can see Over that cave would have been the temple of Augustus. Then you see the big, what's that called? Niche. Small niches right there. All right. And then the the remnants of the temple of Zeus. Next. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the gates of hell. The gates of Hades. This is what it was called back in the day. The spring obviously went down. Next. Niche. Right, that's where Pan was worshipped in the consorts. Next. A flower. Next. <laughs> that is what's left of the Temple of Augustus. Next. That's what's left of the worship of Pan. That was his shrine. Next. This is what's left of the Temple of Zeus. Next. It's where they buried the dead goats, just in case you were dying to know, literally. <laughs> And that's a closer view of where they bury, buried the goats, just in case you didn't get it the first time. Now, next, one final point, and then background is over. Good. Someone just said, good. This whole complex was called in Jesus' day the Rock of the Gods, because it was built against the rock, and there was the worship of many Greek gods. Make sense? Back to Matthew. Chapter 16, verse 13. And remember, by the way, Jesus' disciples were almost exclusively teenagers. These were not 35-year-old men in bathrobes following around, You right? Like, Peter is the only guy that has to pay the adult temple tax. So the rest of them are teenagers, all right? So when he says, when the text says... When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his youth group, <laughs> right? I mean, I was a youth pastor for Andrew and Anna, and they would, their parents would have never let me take them to Las Vegas over spring break. I mean, you know what I'm saying? there's like, this, in the first century, 28 miles away, is, I mean, in fact, it was so, Caesarea Philippi was so immoral that later rabbis taught the Messiah, the first thing the Messiah will do when the Messiah comes to rule on the earth is destroy the city because the Messiah cannot exist on earth at the same time as Caesarea Philippi. It was just considered that wicked. So when Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he's not there by accident and he's with his band of teenagers. He asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, because John the Baptist had been murdered years before. Others say Elijah, a very famous prophet in the Old Testament. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Jesus famously replies, Well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon, Peter, he's the oldest, so that's why he's always talking. Anyway, Simon Peter answered, you are the what? The Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, this is a play on the word rock, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Now, If if you know Christian theology at all, you know that there is a ton of disagreement over what Jesus is talking about here. If you come from a Catholic tradition, the Catholic tradition says the rock Jesus is talking about is Peter. That the church was going to be built on Peter and that Peter is the first pope. That's what Jesus is referencing here. And certainly the later New Testament says the church was built on the apostles. So in a sense, that's true. You come from a Protestant tradition. The Protestant tradition says, no, no, no. It's not Peter that the church is built on, but it was Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah. That was what the church was built on. And certainly, and when you read the book of Acts, right, the church was built on the declaration that Jesus is Lord, no question. But there are lots of other scholars who think there's a more obvious target about what Jesus is talking about here. When he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, where is he? He's in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And what was the region of Caesarea Philippi known for? The rock of the gods. And if you think I'm just kind of making that up, notice what he says next. I tell you that you are are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the what? The gates of Hades will not overcome it. So... Jesus never uses this phrase anywhere else except in the one city where there's an actual place called the Gates of Hades. So when you think of church, the image that Jesus had in mind when he first used it is a band of peasant teenagers looking at a seemingly indestructible monument to the power of Caesar, to the power of Zeus, to the worship of Pan. Now, oh, I could be wrong, totally. My wife will tell you that happens very often. <laughs> but I find it interesting that he uses this language here and only here. Now, why does that matter? couple of thoughts. We're all familiar, most of us, are familiar with the church as kind of a petty, sinful institution. Would you agree with that? No one has to convince us there are hypocrites in the church, correct? None of us are shocked. None of us are like, no way. This is the purified people of God. There's no way. There's no way. Are any of us shocked to find out there are politics in the church and there's ugliness in the church, Right? We we ourselves or we know people who've been hurt by the church, correct? So we're familiar with this, this church thing in its frailest, most petty form. What we're not as familiar with is the, the idea of church as presented by Jesus as the inexorable and inevitable, to quote Thanos. The great theologian, Thanos, Thanos, anybody? Okay, nope, nothing. The inexorable, the indestructible, and the inevitable movement of the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter who is in the White House, and it doesn't matter who sits on the Supreme Court, and it doesn't matter what laws are passed. The movement of God's kingdom will always and forever go, right? It will always move forward. Now, people... I think a lot of Christians don't actually believe that these days. We're, we're pretty convinced that our political involvement is what's going to move the kingdom of God forward. And I just want to say, nah, that's really not so true. Because rather than giving an image, and I'm not saying politics is in any way bad, I'm just saying the amount of heat and energy and focus from Jesus' people, ah, I think maybe our idolatry is showing just a little bit. Because it doesn't matter how great the military is and it doesn't matter how great the economy is and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The kingdom, the more you try to squish the kingdom of God, the more it scatters and grows. There is no way to stop this thing. And you know how I know that? Caesarea is a pile of rocks. And you are sitting here 2000 years later as living stones, according to Peter, being built into a temple. You know what I'm saying? We are not some persecuted special interest group. It's just weird when Christians are so afraid. Supposedly, we follow the guy who conquered death and hell. Right? And don't read this as anti or pro. This has nothing to do with it. If you're reading it as some diatribe against your candidate, you are part of the problem. This is simply about the beauty and majesty of Jesus. Jesus describes his kingdom this way. It's like a little bit of leaven that infects a whole batch of dough. It's like a smallest seed being planted in a field and slowly and hiddenly, it will take the field over. And how does Jesus conquer? Well, it's fascinating because right after this passage where Jesus talks about building his church, he instantly talks about his suffering and dying. So how does Jesus conquer? Is it, is it through our social activism? Or political memes. No! How does he conquer self sacrificial love? And the greatest temptation, it seems, for some of us is the belief that the way of Jesus won't work. The way of forgiveness, the way of reconciliation the way of blessing those who persecute us, when's the last time you saw that on social media? See, none of us think Jesus actually really matters when it comes to that. Sure, he's great with taking care of my sin, but otherwise, no thanks. See, I just don't think many of us are actually convinced that the way of Jesus wins. The way of shunning power, the way of embracing humility, the way of not clamoring for my rights and what I'm entitled to, the way of yielding the floor to others. We don't actually think that's the way it works. So the challenge for many of us is to simply take Jesus at his word, that he wins. And he wins not through coercion, not through manipulation, but through self-sacrificial love, through grace, Through grace, right? So when Jesus talks about his church, the image isn't a group of terrified people hiding somewhere against the big old bad world. Jesus took the most immoral place in his day, looked at a bunch of teenagers and said, there, that's where I'll build my church. And he was right. Amen. Amen? So go ahead, close your eyes if you would. We know God does his best work when our eyes are closed. Seriously, I can't tell you how many times growing up I would hear with every eye closed. And then I would always look. Always look. The minute you said that, I was looking. But seriously, close them. In the name of the Father, In the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, mighty God, would you give us a vision of what it is that we do here that's way beyond a teaching and worship event, that's way beyond checking off religious duty to keep our parents happy, that's way beyond giving God just a bit of our time. Lord, would you remind us afresh of the unstoppable force that is the kingdom of God, would you remind us afresh that, and I know it sounds so weird to say, but we have nothing to fear. Lord, may we actually come to believe that. And may we live and move and breathe out of a place of such joy and such conviction about the beauty and majesty of Jesus of Nazareth that we simply do not have to play by the polarized binaries of our culture but rather we come proclaiming a different king and an entirely different kingdom. And so, Father, we need your spirit poured out on us so that that may happen. So we humbly come and we ask in the name of Jesus, our Christ, amen and Amen.